Morning. It's nice to be back with you. Nice to see some familiar faces. And hello to all of you online. Nice to see you. Uh, it is funny the things that you find yourself becoming obsessed with in different seasons of your life. There was a time where I was at every opening night for a Marvel movie. It's just where I was. Uh, I once became enamored with the music of David Bowie. Uh, there have been religiously listened to podcasts over the years. Uh, I find one and then I'll move on to the next one. Uh, but my new obsession right now is architecture, specifically with certain buildings. I'm going to butcher the way I say this, but I'm going to try anyway. La Sagrada Familia in Barcelona. Uh, it began its construction in 1882, and it is a monumental Roman Catholic church comprised of 18 church towers, beautiful ornate facades, and an absolutely stunning interior floor plan. The Palace of the Soviets in Moscow. It's an ambitious 415-meter neoclassical pyramid built on increasingly concentric cylinders. It's beautiful. The Natural Museum of Scotland was actually built in honor of Scotsmen who lost their lives in the Napoleonic Wars of the 1800s. And it's intended to recreate the Parthenon. The Met, or the Metropolitan Museum of Art, maybe some of you have been there in New York City. It's filled with armor and Islamic artifacts. It's filled with Greek and Roman objects and paintings from around the globe. And the facade has column sets that are capped beautifully. And you know what all of those buildings have in common? They're not done. For one reason or another, none of these buildings have been completed. Now, maybe it's through economic downturn, poor planning, or, or just, you know, circumstances beyond your control, but none of those buildings have been completed to their original blueprint. And you can visit them, you can plan a trip, you can go, but what you'll find is that the structure is not fully designed. It's not complete. There's a missing piece. There's a wing that isn't finalized. Sometimes you'll, you'll even see a sign with a completion date estimated into the future. And I don't share any of these as a knock on these buildings. Life happens, right? But I wonder what could be accomplished if they were done. Could you fit more people in your church building? Could your capacity and in turn your effectiveness be fully realized in being complete? Could you connect with more individuals? And while this is a question for builders and architects alike, this is also a question for followers of Jesus. Are you incomplete? And that's the question we're going to look at this morning as we continue in the book of Acts. But before we do, let's dive in with a word of prayer. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your presence and we thank you for this time where we can look back into the word of God. And we just ask that you would speak. Would you guide us through these next moments in your name? Amen. So Terrell Road has been journeying through the book of Acts. Thank you so much for making them available. It's what I listen to every Monday on my podcasts. Uh, but we've been going through the book of Acts of the Apostles and following along with how the gospel is spreading, as Jesus said in chapter 1, through Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And Paul has had two missionary journeys, and now he's embarking on a third one. 
And the assignment that I have covers chapter 18, verse 23, to the end of the chapter, and then all of chapter 19, almost 50 verses. So naturally, we're going to cover seven of them. But let's just sum up the last half of chapter 18. Uh, Paul spends his time in Antioch, and then he begins his third missionary journey, strengthening believers. And then it shifts over to this character, Apollos who is a Jew, who is very eloquent in the scriptures. He's very knowledgeable, but it says he didn't have a full understanding of the scriptures. And it says that Priscilla and Aquila actually took him aside and explained the way of God more accurately. And then we come to chapter 19, and we're going to spend our time in the first seven verses of chapter 19. So if you have your Bibles open, let's start at verse chapter, uh, chapter 19, verse 1. It says, while Apollos was at Corinth... Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked them, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. We have three children at home, and sometimes out of the abundance of silence, because they are so quiet, uh, an argument will break out. Someone wants something that someone has, she's in my room, something's broken, there's distress. And when I ask for the truth, when I ask what happened, what's going on, the stories never match. Never. See, she says one thing, he says another, and as a parent, it's a very confusing place to be. And I share this with you because when coming to a passage like Acts chapter 19, not many scholars and commentators actually agree on this text. One person says one thing, one person says another, and then you as the reader can become confused. And throughout history, this passage has become the subject of a lot of turmoil. In my personal opinion, it has been abused and overglorified. On the other side, it has been neglected and undersimplified. And because of this text, there are camps within Christianity that have created a two-tier salvation, saying that it's one thing to have faith, and then there's a baptism to follow, which results in a complete salvation. Now, a few weeks back, Alan had shared that the Brethren Movement are patternists, that we look to Scripture and we attempt to structure ourselves around the patterns that we see. That being the case, is that what's happening here? Well, Luke is simply writing down what's happening in the early church, and I don't think he's giving us a template for all that we're supposed to do, at least not in this chapter. But I do think what we see in this passage is a structure and a process for spiritual maturity. That despite the differences on opinions and perspectives that you will hear within Christianity, there are some universal truths happening here that have to stretch beyond denomination. They have to stretch beyond our experience and our thought for how God works in our lives. And so Paul comes to Ephesus and he finds some believers. And he asks them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, this is a strange question 
because it's not one Paul routinely asks when meeting believers, or at least it's not recorded that he's asked it before. And so that begs the question, why did he ask? Well, if we go back to Acts chapter 1, Jesus lays out what's going to happen when he leaves. He says in verse 5, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Verse 8, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And so based on that, the expectation from that interaction is that the Holy Spirit will be present in the life of a believer. And if Paul is asking this, he must have noticed that something was missing. Something was incomplete. And the believers answer Paul saying, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Which is similar to Apollos, if you read in chapter 18, there's a, there's a deficiency in his understanding. But there's two ways to interpret the disciples' confusion. The first way we can interpret it is that they just hadn't realized that there was more to God, just out of complete ignorance. And so out of that ignorance, Paul shares with joy the totality of the gospel. It's a lot like the story of uh, my oldest, Nora. When I was bringing her to school last year, we would drive and she has a playlist on Spotify. And all her songs, her Disney princess songs are in there. Um, but she's also started to like some of my music. And so when I find music that she likes, I'll throw it in the playlist. Well, as we were driving, a song called Hold My Hand by Michael Jackson came on. And I could see her in the back and she's sort of bobbing her head. And so the song finishes and she goes, hey, dad, does this artist have any other songs? And I said, buckle up, kid. Because she had no knowledge as a six-year-old of who Michael Jackson was. And so it's with joy as a parent that I get to introduce Thriller and Beat It and ABC to her. But it's just because she's young. She had no knowledge. And so that's one way to take this interaction, that Paul is just recognizing that they're young. They don't know. But the other way you can take this conversation is that there's a deficiency in their theology, meaning that they only got half the information or they were taught incorrectly. And so if they only got half the information or their theology is off, then Paul's follow-up comes more with a desire for instruction and clarity. Either way you take it, it's strange that they don't know. And the reason it's strange that they hadn't heard about the Holy Spirit is because the Holy Spirit was always a part of John the Baptist's message from the beginning. In Luke 3.16, John says to the people, the Messiah is coming. I'm not him, but when he comes, he's going to baptize you with fire and the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit is always part of the package. And so before we jump to the assumption that they're wrong, they got their theology wrong, we start casting judgment on them, this can very easily happen to us. And you know how I know it can happen to us? Because it happened to me. If you're not familiar with me, I grew up in the Brethren Circle uh, in a sister church just a few miles from Terrell Road, and I was raised on the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Scriptures. The Holy Spirit was something that we referred to as that extra version of God that we can understand. And because we didn't want to get too mystical with it, we passed over it at best and ignored it completely at worst. And I resonate so much with this because I think we can convince ourselves that we as believers are complete because we have entered the baptism of John, that we have repented of our sins. And hear me, this is important. It is needed, but it's not complete. 
Because look at what Paul says next. Verse 3, so Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him. That is in Jesus. And so herein lies the problem. We received John's baptism. The word baptism in the Greek is baptismos, meaning a ceremonial washing. And and Paul points out that the baptism you're referring to is strictly concerning repentance of turning away from. And like I said, this is needed. This is the first step. But you know what? It's not the only step. Essentially, what these believers had done was heard that there was a judgment coming, that the Messiah was imminent, and so they turned from their sinful ways and they repented. And maybe some of us are thinking, well, yeah, that's what I did. I repented. I confessed my sins. Again, this is important. This is right. This is true. But it's not complete. And you think, well, what's the missing piece? Well, the missing piece is turning to Jesus. Because repentance is a twofold term. It's not just turning from something, it's turning to someone. Because you, you and I all can think of somebody in the, in the public eye, somebody who has a, a moral and upright character, and they've turned away from sinful and evil lifestyles. They've stopped drinking or sexual immorality. They've uh, become more charitable with their money, and their, their mouth is a little bit more in control. But you, you know what? They haven't turned to Jesus. And so that's a good first step, but your baptism is incomplete if that's all it is. Because even John the Baptist makes it clear many times that I'm not the Messiah. He says that in Luke 3, John 1, and John 3. John's role is only always supposed to point to Jesus. And so if our baptism, if our ceremonial washing, if the moment that we define as our salvation involves turning from sin, but not to our Savior, it's incomplete. Continuing in verse 5, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. And so these believers come in contact with the fact that their baptism isn't complete. They hear from Paul, and they're baptized in the name of Jesus. And this is the point where things get complicated. This is the point where some denominations get a theology that there is a separation between the gift of the Holy Spirit and the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Some believe that there are two different things that happen at two different times, which results in a complete salvation. Because if you just look at the text, they were baptized, and then they received the Holy Spirit when Paul lays his hands on them, which results in them speaking in tongues and prophesying. And some denominations believe that salvation is comprised of the gift of the Holy Spirit at conversion— But then there's an initial physical evidence of the baptism of that Holy Spirit, which usually results in speaking in tongues. But like we said earlier, I don't think we can adopt that as the pattern. And there's a few reasons why. The first is that Luke is simply writing down what's happening. And that would be a very dangerous precedent to make that if something happens in the Bible, we should just adopt it as theology, because if that's the case, then you all should be dancing really hard and your clothes falling off, just like David did. 
So we can't just create a theology for salvation because it's written in the Bible. But the second reason that we should not adopt this ideal as a prerequisite for salvation is because it adds to the gospel. We covered in chapter 16 that Paul is in the jail, and when he's asked by the jailer, what must I do to be saved? Paul responds with, speak in tongues? No. He says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And so there's no additional hoops to jump through. There's no second reception of the spirit or tongues as a prerequisite for salvation. But the final reason we can't adopt this as the pattern is because it's not the pattern. It's not the pattern. These people here receive the Holy Spirit when Paul lays his hands on them, but that's not what happens earlier in the book. In chapter 8, Peter and John lay their hands on a group of Samaritans, and they receive the Holy Spirit. In chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, the disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit without any mention of baptism. Then Peter calls the crowd to repent, to be baptized, and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit later in chapter 2. Then in chapter 8, we have two different instances of people being baptized without any mention of the Holy Spirit. And then Luke tells us of an instance where the Holy Spirit fell on those who heard the word, and they received the Holy Spirit and then were baptized. That's in chapter 10. It's not the pattern. And you know what? That's the point. You see, if we can accurately pinpoint exactly who, what, where, when, and why God does something, then he ceases to be God. If we can wrap up our theology nice and tight and develop a system for who God is, then he becomes a God in our own likeness. And the Bible has a word for that called idolatry. Now, it might not be a golden calf. But if our understanding of God is elevated over our relationship with him, then it can become an idol. Now, I'm not saying that strong doctrine and good theology don't matter. They do. But they offer us a framework to know him and to grow in our relationship. And if we idolize that framework, then it can become a God to us instead of pointing us to God. But there is something consistent about all of the examples here. Of all the occurrences listed here, there's a similarity that they all share. And it's this. When the Holy Spirit is present, there's always proof. When the Holy Spirit comes, there is proof of his presence. And I think that at a base level, that is something that we all need to agree on and focus on. That despite the uh, interpretations and, and the ways that Christianity differs on this subject, I think we can all agree that where the Holy Spirit is, there's proof. In this passage, we see a manifestation of that presence in speaking in tongues and prophesying. And that's actually a callback to the book of Joel. He says in verse uh, 17 and 16 in chapter 2, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. And in those days, I will pour out my spirit. I've been in environments where this has happened, uh, where there has been speaking in tongues and prophesying, and what it has been used for has always been to affirm or confirm what God is doing or what God is saying. Now, maybe some of you are thinking, well, I don't speak in tongues. I don't prophesy. I don't really know what that means. Uh, does that mean I don't have the Holy Spirit? And the answer is no. 
Again, these examples cannot become the pattern necessarily for us because if they become the pattern and then those things don't happen, then we start to think that something's wrong. And so if there's always proof of the Holy Spirit's presence, how can we tell the proof? Well, a passage many of you can quote, but I don't want you to say fruit. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the proof of the Spirit many of us would say fruit, is love, it's joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. This is the proof of the Holy Spirit's work in your life. This is the baptism we're talking about. You see, we as humans, at least in my experience, we always need some big bombastic demonstration to confirm or affirm to us what we don't understand. We need a burning bush moment. But we forget that the most powerful thing our communities will ever experience is a transformed life. The proof of the Holy Spirit in your life is love for someone on the opposing political party. Not tolerance, love. It's joy when the bills are late and the bank account is empty. It's peace when the diagnosis isn't negative. It's patience when the kids are driving you nuts. It's kindness to the person who cuts you in line. The manifestation of God's spirit coming on you and living in you is that you are acting completely opposite to how you want and maybe even how you should be reacting in the day-to-day moments. And so as we wrap up, what am I supposed to do? Well, I think we as followers have to daily ask this question, where am I incomplete? Have I settled for a baptism of repentance, of simple behavior modification, and not fully embraced Jesus as Savior? That's our first step of recognizing the baptism of the Lord Jesus. It's not simply about turning from a sinful nature, but it's about turning towards a loving Savior. It's about a relationship to nurture and develop. And so am I incomplete? But if you have experienced a complete salvation, if you do have a relationship with Jesus, where's the proof of that? Where is the Holy Spirit present in your life? Because where he's present there's proof. Where is the proof that God's spirit lives in me and I'm allowing him to rule and reign in my life? It's a daily question we have to ask because our hearts are leaky and we have to come back to our center. We have to come back to Jesus. And if we don't, if we aren't allowing the Holy Spirit's working in our lives, then we're just going to be like an incomplete building. Got a lot of great ideas, wonderful intentions, but we're not fully realized because we haven't turned to Jesus and we haven't allowed the Holy Spirit's manifestation in our lives. But God wants so much more for us than that. Because you remember, this is his idea. Jesus actually said, it's better for you that I go. And when I go, the Holy Spirit will be with you. This is God's plan for a complete life. His plan for salvation involves a repentance from sin, a turning towards our Savior, and allowing the Holy Spirit to move in our lives. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's close in prayer. God, we thank you for your word and for your presence with us this morning. 
We recognize that this might be the first in many steps in our spiritual journey. And so as we begin this process of spiritual development, may we continue to return to you and allow your working in our lives. I just ask for a fresh filling of God's spirit on everyone listening and in this room, that we may take that presence as proof into our communities, into our friendships and our families, that you are who you say you are. We love you and we thank you for this time. Amen.